0: 21 years ago today, if you're old enough, you were probably exactly 21 years ago staring at the television, listening in horror to the radio news, calling up your nearest and dearest and sharing stories of grief, anger. It did not take long for the events of 9-11 to get that scapegoat mechanism that Gerard wrote about going. Four Star General Wesley Clark shares this story. About 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the Joint Staff who used to work for me and one of the generals. Called me in. He said, Sir, you've got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, Well, you're too busy. He said, No, no. He says, We've made the decision. We're going to war with Iraq. This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, We're going to war with Iraq. Why? He said, I don't know. He said, I guess they don't know what else to do. So I said, well, did they find some information connecting Saddam to al-Qaeda? You'll remember al-Qaeda had already taken responsibility for the bombings. He said, no, no. He says, there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And he said, I guess if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. Now, we don't know all the reasons why. Clark goes on to tell about how how this, um, this anonymous source in the Pentagon shared a paper saying this was all part of a plan to attack and destroy uh, seven Arab governments over the course, Arab and one of them also uh, Iran, um, governments over the course of five years. Maybe it is that issue of you've got a hammer, So you look for solutions that require your hammer, in this case, the U.S. military. Maybe it takes into account a lot of Gerard's thinking about the scapegoat. What's for sure is within a year and a half, the U.S. attacked Iraq and over the course of the very long war there killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqis despite no connection, no personal connection, of course, but not even their government's connection with 9-11. Even the Afghan war, where there was a connection, bin Laden being known to be connected there and having claimed responsibility, even that was a scapegoating action. It was two decades of war about what we could have chosen to think of not as an act of war but as a mass murder You don't go to war over a mass murder. There are things you could do against the one much smaller organization that takes responsibility, but instead we aimed our fire, we, United States, at Afghanistan. And then to the original action. I'll say the instigating action. The bombing of the towers and the attempted destruction of the Pentagon and the attempt to destroy a fourth target. That was a scapegoating action. What had most of those people to do with whatever bin Laden's complaints were? Terrorism is scapegoating. That's exactly what it is. Now, you've heard. A pretty good explanation um, from, from the um, horse's mouth about what uh, this mechanism of scapegoating is. I just want to say a little bit more about um, Girard's thinking on this. i got kind of Girard in half a nutshell because I'm leaving out a, a big, big part of, um, of his thinking, but just to focus on this bit. People want what others want. Might be an object. It might be resources. It might be land. Might be much more symbolic than that. For various reasons, and he has a lot of thoughts on this, people come into conflict. They want the same things and they can't all have them. This conflict intensifies into violence, chaotic violence, the violence of all against all. Until, whoo, sorry, until they find a victim, someone they can all blame. They scapegoat that person or that group. Often it's a group. Often it's a whole country, a whole ethnicity, a whole everybody who wears turbans on their heads. We saw a lot of that after 9-11. And then they're unified in that scapegoating. Sounding familiar? Now, the other thing that happens that's we touched on a little bit in the end of that reading is that the mechanism of scapegoating is concealed. It has this way of concealing itself because a story coalesces around the victim. This really doesn't want to stay along with my glasses. I need like uh, super glue. There we go. A story comes along, uh, comes around the victim in which the scapegoat is to blame, is an enemy rather than a victim. And this is very sneaky because then the pattern doesn't get recognized and it just gets repeated over and over again. Those doing the scapegoating, Gerard tells us, they always think that they're the victims that they're the ones who have been scapegoated. Once you start to watch for this phenomenon, you start to see it everywhere. Now, once the victim looks like a perpetrator, the scapegoating stops having quite so much effect and more violence continues. But, Again and again, people can choose this, this pattern of let's find somebody to blame and that will temporarily resolve the conflict among us. So that can happen on a grand scale, like with 9-11 and the wars that followed. Two global wars that killed far, far more people than were ever killed On that one tragic day. And another place we see scapegoating on a grand scale is in racism in the United States. It goes in many directions. Many uh, people are targeted by racism, by nativism. But you can see one thread all the way through our history since before this was a country, and that is the steady scapegoating, usually by white people, of people of African descent. In very specific cases, such as, well, a lynch mob is exactly what he's talking about. Something happens. Maybe it's an instigating fact to make a community upset. Maybe there's been a crime, or a crime has been claimed to have taken place. Or maybe that community is just under stress and in conflict itself. There are class differences among them. There are new immigrants among them. Something's wrong in the community. And they're fighting. The white people are fighting among themselves. And then they find somebody to whom they can turn all their violence. We will all lynch this man. We will be united in that. and then for the time being, we will know who the enemy is. We'll repeat that over and over again, and you have, well, you have individual acts of violence like lynching, like police brutality, and then you have institutional forms of violence that continue, Jim Crow, voter suppression, the toleration of police brutality of two criminal justice systems side by side. And again and again, you see that pattern of the other being blamed. The one who has now been named the other, who's going to let us blow off this steam, whoever's in the need of this scapegoat. The scapegoat becomes the one to blame. They're the ones who are scary. They're the ones who commit crimes. They're the ones who attacked us. That kid who was shot by a police officer. Well, if we can't find something to connect him to that uh, conflict, that particular conflict, we say, but you know, he was arrested for dealing pot. We have him on camera having a confrontation with a convenience store clerk, and therefore he's to blame. We're not the scapegoaters. We were scapegoated, and now justice is restored. This is sort of the macro level but it happens on a smaller level too. It happens within us. It happens within small circles of families. It happens in our own consciences, inside our own beings every time something is awry and we're trying to find out who's to blame. So I'll share this story. I promise you this is, this is a funny story um, because uh, the two people concerned got along very well and loved each other very much. This is, um, this is something my dad used to do. I remember vividly being upstairs in our house. He was downstairs cooking. I could hear sort of the kitchen noises of cooking. And um, then I heard this clattering, like clearly something had gone flying, was falling onto the floor, pots and pans, food, you know, I don't know, some kind of kitchen disaster. And I swear, almost before the clatter, I heard a great cry go up. Oh, for God's sake, Susan! Which was my mom. My mother was not even in the house, my father recovered himself, cleaned up. There was nobody to blame but himself. But that sense that right away, oh, something terrible has happened. I need to yell at somebody. And I'm sure if my mother had been there, he wouldn't have said it was her fault. You know, he wasn't being irrational that way. He was just lashing out like we do, like, ah! I'm having a bad day, and we snap at somebody, and then we realize that was scapegoating. We wouldn't go so so far as to say they're responsible for something going wrong at work, or they're responsible for making us drop something, and yet they're made to be the brunt of it. And then, you know, I was all set with this sermon, and I was listening to this marvelous book, Vesper Flights, by Helen MacDonald. You may know her earlier book, H is for Hawk. This is a collection of essays and she, she read an essay, symptomatic, that she didn't use the word scapegoat, but it was exactly what I'd been thinking about and what Gerard is talking about. She was talking about the, um, the symptoms all around us of climate disaster. And she says, we have been conditioned by our times not to process some types of problems and solutions because they do not fit with how we've been taught to think about society. We've been led to believe we can make decisions that change the world in the supermarket, that only our individual decisions matter, that to bring about large-scale change, we should concern ourselves with the smallest actions changing light bulbs, eschewing diesel cars and plastic straws. Defiance and change in process are collective acts, not individual ones. Massive, concerted cultural action is what we need, and that is what we should be hastening to organize. Now she wasn't thinking about scapegoating, but what I heard, having this in my mind, as I said, you start to see it everywhere, I heard, oh, we're scapegoating ourselves. We're saying, I've got a big, scary problem. I need to blame somebody, and so I won't take a plastic straw anymore. And I'm not saying, as I know McDonald is saying, that we shouldn't make those small choices. Of course we should of course we should. But that we're not thinking as big as the problem is. This is what scapegoating does. It, it releases some tension for the short term, but it doesn't solve the problem. Did going to war against Afghanistan or Iraq make people safer from terrorism in this country? Over and over again, People like Wesley Clark are saying, things are worse. In Iraq, people have been radicalized. They never gave much thought to the United States, but now they know who the enemy is. And not surprisingly, it's the one who's dropping all the bombs on them. So if you want to know what the real problem is, you've got to get under that scapegoating process and say, what's really going on? Now, in the case of the environment, you know, it's so big. And the problems are so big. And I don't mean that we should scapegoat some of the institutions that really do cause a lot more damage than your light bulb. Like corporations who have a vested interest in continuing to burn fossil fuels, and they are just going to do anything to make that keep happening, to make us keep doing that. Governments, ours, and so many others that are just hand in hand with those corporations rather than, than defending our planet and what we need. These are the forces that we're up against, and I'm not saying that, you know, we should start screaming at them and bombing them. What we need is massive concerted cultural action, and we can't be distracted from that. You know, not just to change the light bulb, but to commute using An electric vehicle, come next week and learn about that. If you're wondering if you can do such a thing, find out more. Looking beyond the electric vehicles, that's great for your driving. Great, great, great. Do that. But what if we actually had a mass transit system that made us not so dependent on individual vehicles? We're talking about big systemic change here and instead, straws. Not that there's any excuse for plastic straws unless you need them for a disability, but that's not going to fix our problem, right? Now, Girard talks about how this sacrificial violence itself can be a process of displacement, and that's, that's good in a certain way, that he theorizes that Long ago, people used to sacrifice, and we know this is true to some extent, people used to sacrifice a member of their own community, right? An important member, child of a ruler is favorite. That will calm down the conflict. We talk about it as appeasing the gods. He thinks that's all backwards. His theory of where the gods come from is absolutely fascinating, but, you know, too much to get into. But he talks about, you know, it gets more and more symbolic. We had that human sacrifice, then we have the animal sacrifice. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And that in itself is displacing. Maybe we can move farther and farther away from this violence. But for that to happen, we have to acknowledge what's going on. It's vital that we see through the scapegoating mechanism and find another way to deal with the problems that made us go looking for a scapegoat to begin with. To go looking for ways that we can actually address them because they're real problems. So let's look for a moment at where the whole term comes from, where scapegoating, maybe not the first example of scapegoating, but where we get the term from. Maybe that will help us identify the need and some ways to address it. Here's the origin of the term. In the Hebrew Bible, listen and see if you notice anything strange. This is from from an account in Leviticus 16, uh, where, as happens often in Leviticus, God is instructing the people on the sacrifices that they need to carry out. They have various purposes. You sacrifice the first fruits of the field and the first animals um, of your herd and all that kind of stuff. Well, this one is specifically a sin offering. This is what you do when the people have done wrong. So he says to the high priest, you are going to choose two male goats. Two. Two male goats. And you are going to decide by lot what is the fate of each one. One of them is going to be sacrificed in the usual way. And he outlines, this is exactly what the high priest does. He cuts the goat's throat. He sprinkles its blood on the altar. And that is all about um, overcoming the people's sins. Not much about sin, though. Mostly just a little description of, uh, you know, here's what you do. You see it a zillion times in this part of the Bible. Then the other goat, the live goat, the high priest, instead of a knife, he just lays his hands on the goat and he says all of the people's iniquities and transgressions and sins. It says that three ways, like to make it really clear iniquities, transgressions, and sins. And he speaks them all over the goat. And then the goat is led out of the community by somebody who's given that job. The person leads the goat far out into the wilderness and leaves it there. The live goat. Now, you see what's weird? The term scapegoat comes from that goat. It The English term is short for escape, the goat who escapes. I don't know how well a goat would fare in the deserts of you know what is now Israel, but Okay. The goat is set free. That goat lives. His brother did not. And yet when we talk about scapegoats, we're talking about this one. We're talking about punishment. We're talking about death. This live goat, he's never called a scapegoat. That's what it's called over and over again. He's called the live goat. That's the term in the Hebrew, the one who lives. That was just sent out into the wilderness. Now, where and why, it's a little weird. There's a word there, this is the one for Azazel, and that's really confusing. Some people say that's a demon that was said to live out in the wilderness. Um, Some say it's a name for the wilderness itself. Some say it's connected to the word for goat, so it just means the goat, goat. Um, Some say it means it's a sort of doubling of the word away, so it's saying away, away, because that's what that goat is doing. That's what the scapegoat is doing. It's not bearing a punishment for the people's sins and transgressions and iniquities. It's just taking them away. They have been confessed. Their priest says, here they all are. Goodbye, we can start afresh. That's a pretty good process, I'd say. In fact, so I was talking about how Gerard says, you know, we have this distancing. First you have the human sacrifice and then you say, you see it in the Bible with the, with the almost sacrifice of Isaac. Then we have, you know what, let's just sacrifice animals. Um, for most people, that's, um, that's a step up. And then um, what happens after the temple is destroyed? Judaism has to transfer that to something else entirely. And where they used to have sacrifice, Jews now have um, worship services. And they follow, to some extent, the, the practice of the of the sacrifice. They, they happen in a certain order that echoes um, what used to happen at the temple now that there's no animal sacrifice anymore. Okay, so that's, that's helping, you know, from human sacrifice to animal sacrifice to let's just talk about it in words and song. And in fact, the ritual that I just described that's commanded by God to take place at a certain date every year, that becomes the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And you read this passage at Yom Kippur, which is approaching, to hear about, here's how we send our sins away. It's not a bad process, really. There's really just one thing I would say is missing from this ritual that people need. Um, And that is, uh, I mean, I don't want to sacrifice the goat. I'm sorry for the goat that got killed and sprinkled. But I mean, the live goat piece. They're saying what our, their sins are. They're owning them. They're acknowledging them. They're saying, we wanna push them away. Not, we wanna ignore them, right? They just name them, so they're not ignoring them. They just wanna say, I, I don't wanna do that anymore. Go away. Symbolically, go away from my community. There's only one thing that's missing, and that's that you need to make some sort of amends. You know? For many sins, there's amends to be made. And that's, that's the piece that I would want to see in there. But otherwise, that's a pretty powerful um, communal atonement ritual. So what does that for us? What keeps us from scapegoating because it allows us to see what the problem is, right? That's what the people are doing. They're saying, this is what's wrong in our community. I've, I cheated on my wife. I, I stole from my brother. I was harsh with my my children and the people I work with. I've been unkind and uncharitable. I want to put that all on the goat and I want to stop. That's what's causing conflict in our community is the things that we do wrong, the ways we hurt one another. And we're going to solve that instead of punishing somebody with violence. When I think about what we have in place, that ritual reminds me a lot of our winter solstice ritual. If you've never been, um, mark your calendar for December 21st this year. And we gather around and there's lovely, lots of lovely parts of of this um, lay-led service that's been going for a very long time. Um, But one of them is the burning of the Yule log. And before we burn the Yule log, we each take a piece of paper and we write on it something that we want to let go of. I don't know if people would put it as a sin or a transgression, much less an iniquity. But, um, but it's something that we don't want to do anymore. And we put it, we write it down, because we don't, you know, kill goats. We just write it down. We tuck it into one of the ribbons wrapped around the yule log, and then we burn it. And we watch it burn. We do that go away part. And then, just as God commanded the, the ancient Israelites, we do it again the next year, because we're going to mess up again. We're going to say, geez, I have to burn that same one, or I'm doing pretty well on that one, but here's something else. Just like the Day of Atonement, right? But I think we need more than just that annual event. Um, for one thing, it's not, the, it's not all that that service is about. It's about a lot of things. Um, and also, you know, just once a year isn't enough. It's really hard. It's really hard to face everything you've done wrong, or even to remember it once a year. The more often that we build that into our processes, the more, the less we will be inspired to take it out on somebody else, to scapegoat somebody or scapegoat ourselves or focus on some trivial part of the problem instead of the big part, the big problem that's before us. So I'd ask what else helps you recognize when you are aiming blame somewhere other than where it really belongs. You're blaming somebody else. You're blaming yourself when, as Helen McDonald says about climate change, there's a big problem out there. It's not just about what you buy in the supermarket, right? When you're blaming one small piece of the problem and you're missing the big picture, what helps you to do that? I think the ancient Israelites had a great wisdom here not the abuse of a scapegoat, but a a useful use of this process in that they said, oh, we need a ritual for this. It's really, really hard to face up to the things we did wrong. So we need a ritual that will really help it live in us. Oh, I'm going to remember that. I'm going to remember how it looked for that goat to go skipping out into the wilderness and away from us. And I know I've spoken about this before, so I'm going to start putting this into most of our services. A time in the service, take a deep breath, ex-Catholics, of confession. I don't mean confessing to the priests. We're not going to do it out loud at all. Because, you know, when you do that and you start talking in terms of we... It's really easy. There's good reasons in Judaism and so on. There's a lovely thing about confessing to our sins, all of our sins. It's lovely, but, well, I'll just confess. I've done it myself. I've sat there thinking, you know, we say, we have been unkind. And I am like, oh, yeah, she's unkind. She's unkind a lot. <laughs> One of us is unkind. It's not me. <laughs> so I want that time to privately, in the, se- in the secrecy of our own hearts, say, I This is what I confess to. And then together, we say something that affirms we're here for each other. We'll help one another. You don't have to overcome it yourself. You don't have to face it yourself. You don't have to tell us. But if you're trying to make amends, we'll help you. If you're trying to change your ways, we got you. And you know what? We'll do it again next week while you can still remember what you did just yesterday, what you did just Saturday that, ugh, did it again. Because it's a lot easier to make these small course corrections, you know, than to just do it once a year, much less ever. I believe that being able to confess to ourselves or to a very trusted friend or advisor. Here's what I'm doing wrong, and here's what I want to change. I think it can save us. I think it's our lack of our ability to do that. I don't mean Unitarian Universalists. I mean human beings. It's our lack of our way of ways to do that and support in doing it regularly that makes us look for the enemy that makes us scapegoat people, that makes us not even notice that we are scapegoating people. Until before we know it, it's a war of one whole racial group against another. It's a war of a whole country against another, and that's when the blood really starts to flow. We can make peace, and it can really, truly begin with us. May it be so for the sake for the sake of this world.